Church family, it's good to see you here this morning. Appreciate your prayers. I traveled this past week to our state convention. It was uh, very boring in a good way. Uh, we, we did unanimously elect a new president this year who is actually a pastor of a sister church in the area, and it, it was good. Uh, one of the biggest things for me in coming back is in, in getting away and hearing what God is doing elsewhere uh, in the state. It just makes me excited, church family, about all that God is doing currently in and through us. These are good days. They may be rough days in the world, but they are good days to be the body of Christ together. And we have, I am overjoyed and excited about all that God is doing in and through us. Uh, the last several weeks, we have been walking through Revelation 4 and 5, uh, two chapters that really go together. And in going together, they call us to re-examine the nature of our worship. The primary focuses of those passages, chapter 4, we worship God who is almighty, eternal, holy, 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 creator. Chapter 5, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who's used his blood to purchase sinners. And while the primary focus of both of those passages is worship, that primary focus echoes out and reveals things that are tied to that. We worship God as creator because we are his creation. And we are created human beings in His image, which reveals our purpose. Our purpose for existence is to know, love, and follow God as we are known, loved, and cared for by God. Chapter 5, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain on our behalf, reveals the fact that sin broke our purpose, which is why human beings run around trying to find fulfillment and purpose and value in creation when there is no purpose creation can give us our purpose is from our Creator. But redemption and restoration to our Creator is possible because of the blood of Jesus. There is a redemption and a restoration to our purpose, and when you come to, to faith in Christ, when you are saved by grace through faith, you are brought back into a right relationship with God Almighty, and all of a sudden, you have purpose. You have fulfillment. And with that purpose, this side of heaven, comes a mission, His mission. And it's His mission, which we celebrate today with OCC, and we will look at in the text. If you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we're going to skip a couple parts. Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. Look with me, it says this, after these things I looked. Now, let's pause for a second. After these things, what's happened in between chapter 5 and this part in chapter 7? Well, Jesus has begun to open the seals on God's scroll, and the seal judgments have begun. Six of them have taken place. And then you get to this moment in the first part of chapter 7 where God seals, He saves and preserves the 144,000 out of Israel. And if you go, well, pastor, I've got questions about all that. I've got great news for you. We have covered it in depth in Wednesday night Bible study. Just go right online, pull up the audio, and, and you can catch up this week on what happens in between. So after these things, John looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, 
and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces prostrate before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, truly, let it be. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here's the situation. John looks, and he beholds all of a sudden, it says a great multitude. There is a large crowd that is so large, John can't count it. This large crowd, he discovers, is, and when he looks further, it's not just any large crowd, but this large crowd, it says, is made of every nation, people, tribe, tongue. Let me simply, here, here's what that means. This is not a gathering like the Olympics. In the Olympics, all the different countries with their flags march in. There's, there's 197 countries uh, in the world that are recognized. Now, there are some places you may think are a country, but in fact are a territory. Greenland, not a country. It's a territory. belongs to Denmark. There's places like that. This is not what it is. This is not a parade of all the flags from all the geopolitical nations. Nations come and nations go. The language here, even when it uses the English word nations, the idea is that of a people group, a group of people that are bound by a common culture and language. By the way, the United States of America, one country. Did you know there are over 500 people groups in the United States of America? Here's what it says. It says that there is no group too small, no language too little, for the heart and notice of God. Here is, here is a group of people from every people group standing before the throne. Now, we could have a whole sermon just on that statement because thus far in Revelation, no one stands before the throne except the Lamb. And this is the same word. Here's what you need to understand. This multitude that John sees, they are in a place of honor, of favor, they are in a place of grace. They are standing before the throne of God because they are clothed in white. They are clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb. It is a place of privilege, of honor, of favor that they stand and clothed in white robes. By the way, clothed there. It's a perfect passive. You know, what's a perfect passive? Here's what a perfect is. It means at some point they were not clothed. And there came a moment where they became clothed. And from that moment forward, they will always be clothed. There was a moment where they weren't righteous. There came a moment where they were made righteous. And they will always be righteous forevermore. Not only that, it's passive. Here's what passive means. That their clothing is not because they woke up one day and said, I really need to dress better. Let me go down to the store and, and find some clothes to try. Passive means they didn't clothe themselves. Someone else clothed them. Put this way, there was a point they weren't righteous. There was a point they became righteous because someone else gave them their righteousness. That's the lamb who was slain who shed his blood. 
They stand before the throne, righteous, spotless, palm branches, signs of celebration and joy, and they cry out with the praise, salvation belongs to our God, not to any God. Very specifically, they claim the, the God of heaven is their God. It says to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, showing the distinction between Father and Son, Yet one God, this is not just any God, but it's the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Salvation belongs to their God, and they cry out. And when they cry out, notice what happens. We saw something similar in chapter 5. When they cry out regarding salvation, all of these heavenly beings, who if they showed up now in their glory would cause all of us to fear, they all prostrate themselves down. And worship. They say, Amen, absolutely, truly, blessing. God is good and praiseworthy for his gift and favor of salvation. Blessing. Glory. God is beautiful and worthy for his gift of salvation. Wisdom. God alone has the actual knowledge to bring salvation. Thanksgiving. God is worthy of gratitude for salvation. Honor. God is worthy of awe and respect reverence for his salvation and power and might god alone has the power to actually bring about salvation the very salvation that has saved this great multitude and now presents them before the throne clothed in white this is the scene that john sees but a question comes who who are, who is this multitude well look back at the text with me one of the elders answered to, uh, to John and said, those who are clothed in white, who are they and where do they come from? And he said, sir, you know. And John's smart enough to know a rhetorical question that he shouldn't answer. He said, you know. And look at the answer. He's, who are these? They are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, there's two main ways people will understand it, and truth is the text is not fully, fully clear to be dogmatic about it. It's either saying that these are those who have been saved of every tongue, nation, people, and tribe, specifically during the seven years of tribulation that Daniel speaks of, or if it's that group, it's a very specific group of Christians, or it's, it's the great multitude of every tongue, nation, people, and tribe of all believers from all time who've come out of the tribulation that is this world. Either way you go. It either includes us, or even if it's just the group that came out of the tribulation, make no mistake, it's just highlighting them for a specific purpose, we're involved too. So says, who are these? These are the ones saved in the great tribulation. Well, well how did they get there? How, how did this come about? Look what it says. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this is not just in heaven, all of a sudden you've got all the different peoples of the world and, and when it's all over, everybody gets saved. That's not what it is. This is a great multitude that's got representatives of every people group throughout the world. But it's those from every people group who have washed their robes. It's the imagery of someone who comes down to a river dirty, soiled, and who hands their unclean garments to one who washes them not in water, but in the crimson flow of his own blood. 
And that crimson flow of blood washes the stain of our sin white as snow. Said so these are those who have responded to the person and finished work of Jesus Christ the one who was fully God and fully man, who came, born of a virgin, who lived the life that we have failed to live, who, who lived the righteous life from a human standpoint, who was righteous as being fully God, who died the death that we rightfully deserve, who on that cross dying the death poured out his blood as a sacrifice. He drank all of hell on our behalf. He died. He rose forevermore. He ascended, He sits at the right hand of the Father, and any human being who at the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we are in fact a sinner, and that Jesus is in fact God, that He is who He says He is, He did what He said He'd do, and He is coming back, any sinner who looks and says, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong, save me, I need you to be my Savior so I can know you as Lord and walk with you as King. When that moment of salvation by grace through faith happens, he describes it here as those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So that's who these are. How, how did these get there before the throne? It's because they were saved by grace through faith by the blood of the Lamb. And we see who they are. We see how they got there. We also see what they're given. Look, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night, present tense, meaning this, this multitude, these believers, there is never a time where they are away from the very intimate, innermost presence of God, ministering, serving, worshiping Him in His day and night as in temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle or His dwelling place over them. They know the intimacy of the presence of God, not only that, they will hunger no longer, thirst anymore, no, no, where the sun beat down on them, nor will there be any heat. They will have no need. They will know no pain. They will know no devastation. Instead, the Lamb, Jesus, who's in the center of the throne, the Lamb who has sat down at the right hand of God, having made the once-for-all sacrifice, the one who is our great high priest, the Lamb, will be their shepherd, and as their shepherd, He will guide them to the water of life, eternal life, fulfilling life. And not only that, God will take His hand and will wipe every last tear of sorrow, of pain, from persecution, from death, from tragedy. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who are they? They're the ones that have come out of the great multitude. How'd they get there? Because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. What does it all mean? It means that they are forever in the presence of God, serving, worshiping day and night. They will know no pain, and every tear will be washed from their eyes. What a glory! And who are they? They are a great multitude of every tongue, nation, and tribe. Because you see, church family, at this point in Revelation, John is living in a time of great persecution. He, he, he's been shown the beginning of the sealed judgment's opening, and in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the world, being the worst it's ever been, not even the worst of the world and the best of the enemy's plans will thwart God's redemptive mission for the nations. 
And here's the cry of the passage, church family. The cry of the passage is simply this. God is worthy. He's worthy of our worship because of his heart for the redemption and restoration of every people, tongue, and tribe through the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Listen, yesterday and today, the nations rage. Tomorrow, there will be a great multitude from the nations who will worship in joy. There is peace and hope for the nations in Jesus Christ, and this shouldn't be surprising. This has always been God's heart all throughout Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates uh, human beings, and He says, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. Grow. Genesis 3, the fall happens. Purpose is broken. We, We are broken, still in God's image, but broken. And God makes a promise. God makes a promise looking at the serpent, looking at Satan, who's, who's deceived Adam and Eve into sin, and he makes a promise that he will send a Savior who will fix it all. When you move forward in Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, there's the table of nations, because God cares about the nations. Genesis chapter 11, the nations reject God at Babel. They reject His purpose. Romans 1 put it this way, God sees their idolatry and He delivered it over to them. God who keeps track and loves the nations is rejected by the nations, which leads us to Genesis 12, where from human standpoint, God picks a random man, Abraham, Abram at that time, if we want to be technical. And He makes a covenant. He says, Abram, here's the deal. I have chosen you. And from you, I will rise up a nation, a great nation. And your offspring will bless the entire earth, all the nations. Genesis 22, he repeats it to Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 28, he repeats it to Jacob, Isaac's son. Over the course of time, we know the story. The people of Abraham, the Israelites, they end up in Egypt, and God raises up a deliverer, Moses, to lead them out. And you come to Deuteronomy chapter 4, where God's calling them to worship Him, and the call is, you walk with me, and it will be through the the wisdom and, and splendor as you walk through me. Walk with me, that the world will see and understand that I am God. You fast forward to when they're in the land and Solomon's constructed the temple, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, and he makes the statement that that the worship of God's people would be so that all the peoples of the world would know the one true God. You fast forward even further. In Isaiah 56, it says that Those who would worship God from the nations, He will draw to His mountain, for His house is a house of prayer for the nations. Psalms talks all about the Lord God as the God of the nations, and the nations are called to submit to Him. Malachi 1.11 says that His name will be great among the nations, and Jeremiah, He calls Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. There's all sorts of prophecy about the nations. Not only this, God didn't just intend to use His own people to shine His light to the nations. He didn't just raise up prophets to the nations, but Isaiah talks about God's suffering servant, the one who would bring redemption for all mankind. And it says this in Isaiah 49, God said to His servant, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob 
to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. When you fast forward to the genealogy of the suffering servant, Jesus, who's in his genealogy, Matthew 1? Rahab and Ruth, Gentiles from the nations. You walk through the life of Christ. He ministered to Jew and Gentile. You get to the end, it says in 1 John that his blood is the, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, not just ours, but for the whole world. Understand, church family, God's heart for the nations is nothing new. It's nothing that, that, that is a modern phenomenon of the modern missions movement. It's, it's nothing unique to the early church. God's heart from day one has always been for the people, every man, woman, boy, and girl, to know Him, love Him, and follow Him, all of them throughout the world. This is His plan. All four Gospels have some form of great commission sending them out. In Acts 1, Jesus says, as you go, don't you dare do it until the Holy Spirit comes. Listen, God has a mission. God calls us to be on his mission. The Holy Spirit is God. God goes with us and empowers us to do the mission. And it's not just God's current plan, but it will always be God's plan. Here we see in Revelation 7, and when you fast forward to the end of Revelation 2 in the new heaven and new earth, there is a tree of life whose fruit is for the healing of the nations. Church family, understand today, God's heart is a heart for all the world. For God so loved the world. And if we really understand that, if we really grasp and are going to worship Him because He's worthy for His heart for the world, then understand our mission, corporately as a church, individually as believers, the mission that drives our life must be for the redemption and restoration of the peoples, every tongue and tribe, through Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, to be saved by grace, is to be a missionary. Now, some of us are missionaries lifelong in countries that we weren't born in. But if you are here this side of heaven, saved by grace through faith, you are a missionary because you are living in a foreign land with a message to proclaim. To follow Christ is to be on mission. To love Jesus is to have a heart for the nations. Yet oftentimes we say, oh, in our churches, here's our missions, folks, and here's our normal Christians. Listen, it's time for normal Christians to be the mission folks because that's what Scripture says. To be a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-walking church is to be a church of life. And if you're a church that's spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-walking, you're going to be a church that's doing what the Spirit does, which is go therefore and make disciples of every nation. Our ministry as a church is not primarily to create a wonderful place where we can love each other and worship God together, and then, by the way, secondarily, we do missions. If we're going to be a place where we love each other, a people that loves each other and worships God together, then our primary function missionally is to reach the world, not secondarily. It's primarily 
We must have eyes to see the nations before us, hearts that love the nations around us. We must have spirits that are driven and compelled by the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that are broken by the lostness in the world. Here's the reality, church family. Today in the world, there are at least 12,000 different people groups, 12,000 that make 8.1 billion people, 7 thousand of those people groups are considered unreached, meaning 4.8 billion people live in people groups where there are less than 2% of the population that know Jesus Christ, and there is little, if any, effort at church planting and evangelization. 4.8 billion people over half the world, our minds can't even fathom a number that large. But even if we zone out and say, well, what about just the overall world? Understand, seven and a half billion people in the world live in people groups that are less than 10% born again. Now, help me help put that in perspective. If you're living in this country and you're concerned at the ways our country is going, the way that people seem to not be coming to faith in Christ, the, the state of the church today compared to, if you have any of those concerns, understand today, 26% of America identifies as born again. And seven and a half billion people in the world live in people groups where less than 10% are born again. We can't even fathom what the lostness of the majority of the world is like. And God's heart is for the nations. We've got to open our eyes, church family. Did you know that there are 14 million people in America that are considered unreached as people groups? Groups, refugees, uh, people who've left their countries and come here for jobs. But not only that, did you know in nearly every single country, geopolitical country, there is nearly in every single one a people group that is always unreached and most of the time unengaged, meaning there's no effort being made to reach them. It's the deaf community. The deaf community in this world makes one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. Even in our own city and church, we do the best we can to try to at least offer interpretation for the deaf community, but understand if we're going to be a church that takes mission seriously, we need help because there's a real people group in our city where there's very little effort in the churches in this greater region to reach even just the deaf. We've got to open our eyes. When I, when I was at A&M, there are over 6,000 international students at A&M. Seven of the top 10 countries that send their students to A&M are illegal to preach the gospel on the street. China and Iran are in the top three when I was at A&M. And make no mistake, I don't have the stats for UT because I don't know the director of international students at UT like I did at A&M, but I would guarantee you it's pretty similar at UT. Yet, did you know historically in Bryan College Station there is no church that has made major inroads into reaching the international student community? We've got to open our eyes, church family. 
Realize 300 years ago, William Carey left England, packed up his family, he sailed to India and gave up everything to spend his life trying to see the gospel take root among the people of India. Yet when I walk out my house and go for a walk, the, ma the majority of my neighborhood are the very people William Carey left to go reach. Church family, the nations aren't just in the world, they're here. And we've got to open our eyes. We've got to see them. Could it be that the people who are most receptive to the gospel are all around us, but we just aren't in tune with his mission? Because most of us are prone to only think of ministry and mission in terms of, well, what would I want and what would meet my needs? There is a world at our fingertips. Yet go through church budgets. So many churches, well, man, we'll raise billions of dollars, billions. We'll raise millions of dollars to build church buildings. Will we raise millions of dollars to reach the nations in our community? Churches that will say, we need to relocate the church because there's no more growth in our part of the city, but you drive through the city and you realize there's no boards, no, no houses are boarded up. It's just the community has changed, but the church refuses to change its ministry methods to reach the community. Someone told me recently of a church in Australia, a First Baptist Church they went to, but it surprised them because it was a Chinese church. It didn't start as a Chinese church. But as the neighborhood changed, rather than pull out, the church decided, we're going to do whatever we can to meet the changing neighborhood. And so this church remains today looking and even maybe sounding drastically different than when it started but remarkably looking right in line with the mission of God. We've got to open our eyes, church family, and prioritize God's mission. We say, Pastor, how do we do that? Well, let me be real simple. Scripture gives three really clear. If, we were to, if I were to take you through all of Scripture, how do we respond to God's mission? There's three really obvious ways to respond. One, we can pray. And not just we can, we must pray. It's imperative that we pray. We pray. There, there's Lottie Moon prayer guides to pray for our IMB missionaries. We, we give them out in Annie Armstrong. There are things that we are working on having in the 24-7 prayer guide so you will know of missionaries and peoples to pray for. You can, doubt, you can pull up the Joshua Project. They even have a mobile app that every day will notify you of a people group that's unreached in the world to pray for with specific prayer requests. We must pray. We must pray for open doors. We must pray for soft and convicted hearts. We're praying for salvation. Not only that, church family, we don't just pray for open doors, but Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so hold a rally and call people to go. No, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so pray that God would raise up laborers for the harvest. We pray. We don't just pray, we give. This is what we do today. All these boxes, almost 800 on the stage Operation Christmas Child, and we give. We use our resources, and specifically financially, to give. By the way, did you know this box? It's not just a Christmas gift for a child who would normally not get a Christmas gift. That's what I thought it was for years. It's not that. To get this box, a child only gets one in their entire life. And to get it, their family agrees to an eight to 12 week evangelism course to be taught by missionaries. You see, these boxes aren't simply a Christmas gift. These boxes represent a family somewhere in harder to reach parts of the world who will hear the gospel. 
when we pray over them in a little bit. We're not just praying that those families would be blessed with a gift, but that those families would come to know the grace and favor of our Lord Jesus Christ and we'd be part of the great multitude we read now and we look forward to seeing in person. We give. We give our normal tithes and offerings. If you look at our church budget, when you, when you give to the church and, and just your, your, your faithful giving that God expects of us to give in our tithes and offerings, we send percentages of it, some to our local Baptist association. Well, that money's not membership dues. It goes to do church planting and evangelism in the Austin area. We send a portion to our Southern Baptist Convention through the cooperative program which is a brilliant thing I don't have time to, to, to explain today, but simply this, that money that goes to the cooperative program, that's what fully funds our missionaries overseas who are sharing the gospel. We give. We take up an additional Lottie Moon Christmas offering above our tithes and givings. Listen, we give, and church family, we do give. Did you know we're in the top five in giving for the ABA, the Austin Baptist Association, made up of 200 some odd churches? Did you know in our association, it's been told to me we're in the top five of givers for Crisis Pregnancy Center? We give towards missions. And we need to continue to give towards missions because there's more we can do and more ministry yet to be done simply because we lack the funds and resources. And God delights to provide through what he gives his people and calls us to steward. We give, but we don't just give, church family, we go. We pray, we give, we go. We go. Well, what do I mean by go? Well, we go down the street and we go around the world. It's not one or the other. Oh, you're a foreign missions person, I'm a local. No, we're just missions people. We're a people of mission. And we go down the street and, and around the world we have to be a church that is not satisfied looking like we are or even as we've been, but we've got to be driven to reach the community we're in. We can't be satisfied with just having the small group the way we want it, the program we want it, but we, can, we must be driven to make sure that every home in the greater Pflugerville area and beyond hears the gospel because we're a people of mission who go. One year I led a mission trip to Vienna and we worshiped with a church. Now, you might expect in Vienna, Austria, uh, you might expect that we worshiped in German, and you'd only be partially right, because that church was made up of both German and Austrians, as well as Romanians, as well as other people who couldn't speak those language but English, and we worshiped in song, and on the screens were the same lyrics in three different languages. Could you imagine, church family, what it would look like if in five years, every Sunday on that screen, were English lyrics, Spanish lyrics, and Hindi lyrics, and as you listened to the resound of praise in this room, you heard the sound of heaven as every tongue and tribe praised the Lord in unity together? But listen, we won't get there if we don't go. We've got to go. We've got to go. Going will demand we lay down our preferences and maybe even some of our traditions. It will demand that we dare to follow Jesus into the unknown, to the cutting edge of light and dark, of ministry and mission. It will demand our worship is completely about him and him alone. Remember chapter five, we worship him because he shed his blood for the purchasing of human beings from all the nations, peoples, tongues, and tribes. 
See, if we're going to say we worship him, we have to be willing. It's going to demand a willing heart and open hands from us being willing to do whatever Jesus asks us to do, however he asks us to do it, whenever he asks us to do it, just like it does for those whom he takes overseas full time. Because remember, we're all missionaries. And God will demand the same from us. It'll mean we have to venture out of our comfort zones. If I'm going to effectively live on mission in my neighborhood, I'm going to have to learn a different culture. Rather than teaching them baseball, I need to learn how to play cricket. It means we're going to have to allow our children to go on mission trips. And not just mission trips to Dallas, but mission trips to other parts of the world. It may mean God calls our children to live overseas. And if that's His call, we have to send them means we've got to see ourselves as missionaries and not just locals. We've got to minister to our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. When I was at Carrollton, there was a Zumba class for ladies that the church hosted, a workout class. And there were some ladies in that class that were from Eastern Europe. They had been in America for nine years and had never stepped foot in an American home. High school, junior high students, one of the most effective missionary tasks I ever had as a high school student was to befriend the foreign exchange students at my, at, in our school. They'd come to anything I invited them to, church or not, bring them to church. Then I'd drive them home. What'd you think about church today? Oh, I thought it was good. This song was nice. I didn't understand what the pastor said about Jesus bleeding on the cross. Oh, can I please tell you? By the way, I didn't make that up. That's a true question I was asked. Listen, the opportunities are all around us. It just demands a little bit of hospitality and selflessness and pulling back from the busyness of our lives where we overlook his mission. Hospitality could open the door for eternity, church family. Worship of Jesus demands we surrender to his priority of missions over our priorities and preferences for life. When I was at DBU as an undergrad, there was a, a faculty member they brought in one day to share, uh, share his testimony. You see, DBU, 10% of DBU student population are international students. And as RAs, they wanted us to make sure we had the correct eyes, right? Because you might go, oh, international students, they've come to DBU to train. They're Christians, false. Most of them aren't. And so they, they had this faculty member come, and, and he, when he was growing up, he grew up in Japan. And the door opened for him to come to his university studies in America. And so they got out, well, where should I go to college? So they got out a map, he and his parents of America, and he thought, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth seems to make sense. It's in between, so I, I'm, I'm kind of equal distant from the coast if I want to travel. It's got a very large, easy to navigate in terms of getting where you want in the world, not once you're actually there but airport. <laughs> and okay, well, what colleges are in Dallas-Fort Worth? And so they searched universities in Dallas-Fort Worth. Top two results, Texas Christian University and Dallas Baptist University. So they had this conversation, and his parents said, well, son, we don't think 
you should probably go to Texas Christian University because we're not Christians and don't want to be. But this Dallas Baptist University looks nice. What do you think Baptist is? Their best guess was someone's last name. So he enrolled at Dallas Baptist University and very quickly from day one figured out, oh, this is actually a Christian college. Irony being the other one isn't. And over the course of his time at DBU, he would befriend people and professors. And eventually, as he went for a run and the president of the university went for a run, they forged a relationship. And over many years of hospitality, of come over for our house for Thanksgiving, come over for Christmas since you can't go home, come over, he gave his life to the Lord. Amen. Church family, the nations are all around us. And God is absolutely calling all of us to pray. He's absolutely calling all of us to give. And He is for sure calling every one of us to go. The question is, does He just want me to go next door and take a knock? Or is He calling me to pack up my life and go to the other side of the world for a period? It's just a question of where is He calling us to go? But He's calling us to go. And if we really understand the glory and greatness of who He is, He's almighty, He's holy, 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 He's creator, He's eternal, oh, He's the Lamb who was slain, who, who redeemed. If we really understand His glory, then like Isaiah, we will hear, who will go for us, whom shall I send? And church family, may our response only ever be, here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. <laughs> you are worthy, and it's all about you. And the nations of this world have been in rebellion for more years than we can process. Yet your heart has never wavered to shed your blood that you might purchase out from the nations people for you. So Jesus, may we be a church for whom missions is not a once-a-year offering, for whom missions is not an occasional mission sermon, but Lord, may we be a church in the very fiber of our being whose heart is your mission, whose drive is your mission. May you open our eyes, help us see. Father, would you embolden us and may we step out in courage. Father, we will never be a church whose heart is mission if first and foremost each one of us as an individual believer does not submit before you and acknowledge God. When, when you saved us, you called us to be your ambassadors, your missionary to this world. May we pray, may we give, may we go. Lord, in this time of invitation, Holy Spirit, you know how you're stirring hearts both in this room and watching online. May you find us faithful to respond to you, Lord. Jesus, it's to you we look, and in your name I pray.